morning, church. How was that? That was nice. And um, as we have turned our eyes upon Jesus in our hearts and in our minds, let's, let's pray to him, yeah? So please join with me. And if you haven't been here before, praying is simply just speaking to, to God, uh, the Creator, and uh, join with me in that. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, our Creator God, we thank you so much that, Lord, both you are above and beyond us. You are sovereign in control over all things. Lord, you are unreachable in and of ourselves, but Lord, through Jesus, you are here with us. And Lord, you're present with us. And, and Lord, for those who believe that you are there, your presence is in our hearts. And Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you, Lord, that you desire to be prayed to more than what we desire to pray. We desire that, Lord, Lord, that you desire to dwell with us more than what we even care to be with you. And, Lord, that is extraordinary. And, Lord, we thank you that you've proven this to us in Jesus, that, that God would become a man and dwell within us, dwell with us, the oppressed, the poor, and experience injustice. Lord of the worst kind, and Lord, we praise you that you are unlike any other God, a God that we could not create with our own minds. Lord, we thank you for today that we can come meet together. We thank you that even though we have ignored you and not been thankful, Lord, this week for all the many blessings that you've given to us, Lord, there is forgiveness with you, and Lord, we thank you for that forgiveness that is been bought through Jesus' blood, his death upon the cross, his substitutionary death for us. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray, Lord, for our world. Lord, we know that you're in control over all things and you can make things change in an instant if you wish to. And Lord, we pray especially for the situation in Ukraine with its continuing violence, continuing horrors, continuing injustice, Lord. Unspeakable things, Lord. And Father, we pray that we would see an incredible de-escalation of those hostilities quickly, Lord. We pray for, Lord, the Ukrainian people, and especially, Lord, our brothers and sisters in, in Christ, that, Lord, that you would be with them and give them strength and comfort and hope at this time, and that their hope would not be Lord, in, in government, nor in themselves, but in you. Father, boy, we do pray for peace. Lord, please send your peace in that place. Father, we pray for our country here in Australia. We are set, Lord, to have another wave of, of COVID infections, the flu, all sorts of things, Lord. And there's lots of people who have been, Lord, horribly affected by this. Lord, we just pray that you would, um, Lord, look after our aged care workers, Lord, you'd be with the doctors and the medical staff and people who are uh, dealing with these things in the hospitals. Lord, we pray that at this time, Lord, where we're as humanity as, as a Western civilization for so long, we've felt so proud that we're in control over all things. But this little bug, Lord, has proven that we're not. And Father, we pray that it would cause humility in our hearts. We pray that, Lord, it would cause us to look to someone beyond ourselves and beyond our own intellect and beyond our own being, Father, and it might cause us to look to you. We pray, Lord, that you would assist those that um, are working on new medical treatments, 
that are researching these things. We pray you'd bless them in their endeavours. And Lord, may they, Lord, find uh, wonderful solutions to the problems that we currently face. And Father, we pray for our wider community, especially all along here in the Northern Beaches. We pray for those that struggle with addiction, whether it be alcoholism, whether it be... There are so many things, Lord. We just pray that you would assist those, Lord, that are living with addictions and help them to overcome them, we pray. We pray for those that help them, Lord. Lord, workers to to deal with these things. And Father, we ask that your spirit, for those within our church, Lord, particularly, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. Lord, pour, pour yourself into that chasm where the addiction dwells. And Lord, may we find, Lord, that you are... Lord, our only hope. May we find that you are our true source of enjoyment and satisfaction in this life as you've designed us to be like that, Lord. We pray that, Lord, you lift burdens, struggles, pain and hurt that is in people's lives. And, Lord, you promise that you are the God who is close to those who are brokenhearted. May they find you, Lord, to be the comfort that they need. Not a bottle, not a needle, not some other pill, not some other unhealthy behavior and father as we close in prayer today we ask lord that you'd bless scott as he comes and shares from the scriptures lord we pray for ourselves that you'd help our hearts to be quietened to be not distracted to be open to the teaching from the scriptures lord we pray you'd help us to be discerning and thoughtful believers and lord may as has already been prayed lord that you would change us and transform us through seeing who Jesus is, through understanding what he is like and seeking to become more like him. May you transform our hearts with your truth. Reveal that to us yet afresh. And in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Philippa is going to come and read from the scriptures for us. Thank you. Good morning. The um, Bible reading this morning is very interesting, so I'm going to look forward to what Scott um, says to us about it. <laughs> it's uh, John chapter 10, verses 7 to 18, and it's on page 1075 in your Bibles. That's 1075 in the Bibles in front of you, and at home um, you can find it yourself. That's John chapter 10, verses 7 to 18. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. 
I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Well, good day, everyone. How are you going? I'm all right. How about you? Yeah, good. Thanks for asking. Hey, uh, I'm going to pray. Welcome to you guys watching along at home as well. I hope you're in good spirits. And then we'll get straight down to work. Uh, if you can keep your Bibles open in John chapter 10, that'll be a help to me and to you. And I'll refer to it a little bit later on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, you're good, especially in speaking to us. So speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You might have heard of something called broken window theory. And if I can just have that swapped over, guys, because I can't see what's going on. That's perfect. Broken window theory. In fact, there are two broken window theories. One is an economic theory that came out of France in the 1850s. But the one I'm thinking of is about law and order, which came out of America in the 1980s. And the theory goes that if you leave broken windows in a rundown part of town, that kind of low-level disorder leads to increased fear and social withdrawal from residents, which in turn allows more serious crime to enter. So you fix the windows, fix the crime. Which sounds really good, to the point where policing that was based on this broken window theory was celebrated as the cause of a giant decline in crime in New York City in the 1990s. Only problem was that crime in New York City had already started to decline several years before broken window policing started. And furthermore, crime rates also declined in cities that didn't use broken window policing either. So this broken window theory turns out to be rather dubious assumption. Now recently, census data was released in Australia that indicates a shrinking percentage of people in our country are signed up to established religion and a growing percentage are nominating themselves as of no religion. And because the stories are told uh, in many ways in our culture, there's this almost um, unnamed and unsubstantiated assumption that religion is bad for us. It's bad for us individually, it's bad for us as a society. Religion makes us feel guilty, it crushes our freedoms and expression, it's rooted in ancient folklore and mythology, it's been incriminated by history, it's been disproved by science, it's harmful to gay people and women and transgender people, it's old and white, not that there's anything wrong with being old and white, mind you, it's old and, I said that at 8 o'clock and they started to laugh, it's... Uh, old white American and male, it causes wars, condones slavery and generally holds back. It hinders rather than enables morality and it just makes us feel miserable. Surely we would be better off without religion. But is that true? Or is that just a dubious assumption? And that's what we're thinking about today. It's the first week, as Nathan said, in a new series called Confronting Christianity, loosely based on a book of the same name. looks like this by the brilliant, brilliant Rebecca McLaughlin. Well worth a read or a listen to in the audio book because McLaughlin reads her own work. It's lovely. 
And in that book, she tackles 12 questions that are typically posed to the Christian faith. We don't have time to do all 12, and we'll look at a couple that aren't in her book. But across this series, we're going to investigate these six questions on Sunday. Are we better off without religion? Should we take the Bible literally? Is God homophobic? Would a loving God send people to hell? Is Christianity the only true religion? Does the Christian faith crush diversity? So there are questions about suffering and science that are in the book that we won't cover, and we'll cover an additional two topics in special midweek sections that you'll hear about soon. Don't stress, it's not this week. But today the question is, are we better off without religion? Or is that a dubious assumption? And if it's a valid assumption, um, or if it's not a valid assumption, why is that? Why can that possibly be the case? Well, I want to start today with some surprising findings before looking at some possible counterintuitive explanation for those surprising findings. So the first surprising finding emerged from data we looked at two weeks ago when Bruce kind of gave us a rundown of the state of Australian Christianity. You'll remember the headline news from the census result was for the first time, less than half of Australia ticked the box to self-identify as Christian. And that decline in people ticking the Christian box was matched by an increase in people ticking the no religion box. That was kind of the headline news in the media. But you remember when we drilled down into the numbers, we discovered that those results and the commentary around those results was dominated by people in the 50 to 64 age bracket. They were the least likely group to attend religious services regularly. And they also happened to be the group that run corporations, lead governments, write newspaper articles and hog the microphone. Not okay, boomer. You also remember when we drilled into the data, about a third, promisingly, right, a third of young adults attend a religious service at least once a month. And people both older and younger than the 50 to 64 age bracket were much more open to faith, even to Christian faith, uh, even to church involvement, especially if they see Christians living an authentic Christian life and also if churches refrain from making uninvited political commentary. So boomers here, but really, I'm actually talking to everyone, every Christian person. Our job is to be as positive and as regular about church as we can, to be as kind and as authentically Christian as we can, talking about our faith rather than our politics. Now, good luck with all that. But actually, it's really good news as far as I can tell. And I, I, I commend a listen or a re-listen to Bruce's message from a fortnight ago. But... There's even more good news. Back in 2016, a Harvard School of Public Health professor called Tyler Vanderweel, which is the best name ever, isn't it? It's so American. Tyler Vanderweel, awesome, and a journo called John Sinniff, they wrote an article for the USA Today called Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And uh, Rebecca McLaughlin cites this in her book. And in the article... They outline the mental and the physical health benefits that correlate with regular religious participation, which show that those who regularly attend religious services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, are more self-controlled, and may even have a longer life, as going to church was shown to reduce mortality rates in America by over 20% across a 15-year year period. Aren't you feeling good? You should be. Now, they weren't 
silly, right? They weren't saying everything about religion was great. They're not idiots, but they were saying, surprisingly compared to the public commentary, that religious participation appears to be good for your health and your happiness. And this is acknowledged also by secular psychologists of the highest order, such that Rebecca McLaughlin concludes the chapter in her book with these words. You turn this data on its head about the benefits of religious participation. You turn this data on its head and any trend towards secularization is a public health crisis. Isn't that interesting? But it's more than just personal happiness, right? It's also social good. And you only have to think about the social benefit provided by Christian churches and religions more broadly in terms of schooling, in terms of charities, in terms of aged care, not to mention the plethora of other organisations that rely on volunteers for which religious people statistically volunteer at higher rates than their secular neighbours. Or think about it this way. If you took away church schools church-based charities and church-provided aged care facilities, our society would implode. People would literally, and I mean literally, be dying in the streets. And this has been acknowledged by our federal member for charities, uh, a guy called Andrew Lee, who's an atheist and economist. He nevertheless argues for the promotion of religion as good for society in his book, Disconnected. Most of the photos you see of Andrew Lee, he looks very kind of happy, smiling. This one, he looks like he's forgotten where he par parked his car, don't you reckon? <laughs> I thought I parked it over there. Oh. We think that uh, we're this tiny minority of people, you know, vague, obscure, irrelevant, delicate, ailing. The surprising truth seems to be the opposite. We're not as much as a, of a minority as we're told. And our religious habits are as healthy and vital as ever. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian faith is true, does it? But nevertheless, it's a surprising find, don't you reckon? So why is it the case that religion is potentially good for you? And let's narrow it down, because I'm not as interested in religions per se. In the book, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she's more generous than I would naturally be in terms of the positive benefits she extends to all religions. So let's consider why Christian faith could be good for you and why our culture might be better off with Christianity than without it. And I have some um, possible counterintuitive explanations. The first of which is that what we think or what we are told equals a good life in our culture may not actually be a good life, in fact. So our culture tends to emphasise wealth, it tends to prioritise convenience and comfort, and it places a very high premium on the individual and individual freedom and choice. So wealth, comfort, and kind of individual choice are really the ideals in our culture, and they contrast to varying degrees with the ideals of the Christian faith. And you can visualise this difference in a comparison of Bob and Mary, right? They're kind of just created characters that Jonathan Haidt cites in his 2006 book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. He's a secular atheist psychologist. Bob is 35 years old, white, attractive, athletic. Okay, it's American, right? He earns over $100,000 a year in 2006 and he lives in sunny Southern California. He's highly intellectual, he likes to read, he go to museums. 
Mary, there she is, lives in snowy Buffalo, New York with her husband. And with her husband, earns a combined income of only $40,000. She's 65 years old. She's black. She's plain in appearance. Now, let me just stop there. I'm not saying this lady's plain in appearance, okay? She's got a really nice smile, doesn't she? Warm, friendly eyes, funky earrings, okay? So don't be critical of me. I'm just trying to work with the book. (laughs) 65 years old, black, plain in appearance, and on dialysis for kidney problems. But she's sociable, and she's actively involved in church-related activities. Now, for all money, says Jonathan Haidt, you would say Bob's going to have the better life. But statistically, he concludes, as a world-renowned psychologist, a much better bet is that Mary has the happier life. Her network of relationships, many of which are grounded in her participation in church life, are coupled with a whole host of psychological goods that enable her to enjoy life more than her more privileged comparison. So as it turns out, more money doesn't make you more happy. Beyond a certain level at which money enables you to afford a basic level of security, more money does not buy you increased well-being. Studies and surveys as large and, and as prominent as the World Happiness Report essentially confirm what Jesus taught us some 2,000 years ago, that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Or what the Apostle Paul instructed a young minister in 1 Timothy command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. It's so uncertain. (laughs) But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Our culture says you need more to be happy. And our Bibles agree you need more. You need more God. You need more hope. You need more humility. You need more vital relationships, but you probably don't need more money. But those other things are the things that will bring us joy. Uh, A related factor is the idea of contentment. The gospel allows us as Christians to be truly content regardless of our situation, whether we're Bob in sunny California or Mary in freezing upstate New York. In the same section of scripture I quoted above from the Apostle Paul, he wrote these delightfully light words. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, for godliness with contentment is great gain. Or uh, just as strikingly, he wrote these words to the Philippian Christians from jail. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, let me tell you something. Our culture would love to be able to say those words, kill to be able to say them. And yet at the same time, we, as members of our culture, tremble and panic at the thought of being without. But the Christian can draw upon gospel resources and the hope of an unimaginably glorious eternity to be content with what we have right here and now. And we can add to our contentment, gratitude, giving thanks in all circumstances, rejoicing in the Lord always. And we can add to contentment and gratitude, generosity, knowing that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Christian faith gives us 
a better idea about contentment and gratitude and generosity than our envious, greedy, anxious, and often tight-fisted culture does. Christian faith also encourages self-denial, self-control, and perseverance, which turn out to be key indicators of life success. They're very unsexy qualities, aren't they? The ability to say no for now or no forever. The capacity to wait. The capability to press on when things get mundane and boring or difficult. The character-building traits of not looking for an easy way out or easy roads. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should always choose the more difficult of two options regardless of the situation before them, but I am saying that our faith encourages us to go the distance. It urges us to deny ourselves in order to follow another. It instructs us to add to our Bible knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and so on. And as it turns out, these very qualities we embody as we seek, often mistakenly, to follow the Lord Jesus through all the ups and downs, through hardships and persecutions, appear to be indicators of human flourishing across wide reaches of human life. So Angela Duckworth and James Gross, they wrote a study called Self-Controlled and Grit, and it found that perseverance and self-control are predictors of a person's success more than social intelligence, more than emotional intelligence, more than IQ, even more than good looks. How fortunate you are, hey? (laughs) Certainly the Christian faith encourages us to think beyond ourselves. Part of a community, aren't we? And we are connected to a bigger story than us as mere individuals. It's July. July means only one thing in our household. Tour de France, (laughs) watching it every night, so good. And I noticed this year the Tour de France travelled through Dunkirk in northern France. And if you know the World War II story of Dunkirk or you've seen the film that came out recently, you would know that over 400,000 British, French and Belgian troops were cut off and surrounded by the German military in the harbour of Dunkirk in May 1940. The only way to get these troops out was by sea. So the Royal Navy sent in ships to rescue them. But it was such an emergency that the call was put out for boat owners of all descriptions to join in the rescue mission. So between May 26 and June the 4th, about 850 private boats sailed from Ramsgate in England to Dunkirk and back to ferry the soldiers from certain death. Many of them were fishing boats, barges, tugboats, pleasure craft, sailed by their civilian owners and more than 100 of these little ships of Dunkirk were sunk by German aircraft and that's an indication of the risks attached to them playing their part. Makes you wonder, why were they so enthusiastic to get involved? But then it's obvious, isn't it? They were part of a bigger picture, a tiny detail in a much bigger story. And humans have always found meaning and purpose in playing a small part in a story bigger than themselves. The Christian faith invites just that. The sheer volume of one another commands is just a clue that each Christian, each of us here, is part of a bigger picture. Now that's a powerful antidote to 
isolation and loneliness, which is the dark side of our culture's emphasis on personal choice and individual freedom. That we need to consider others better than ourselves. That we need to put the interests of others before our own. Forgiving one another, apologising to one another, is a marker of what we hope our community will be like. I've got to say it's better than our culture's way of blaming one another and cancelling one another and bearing grudges. And, and, and it's, it's more than just you know, being a member of a cricket team or joining a community choir, although of course those things are good in themselves. Now the Christian faith's answer to consumerism and materialism, our aspirations about contentment, gratitude, generosity, and the nature of our common life together are all possible counterintuitive explanations for this data, which suggests that religion is good for us, after all, both personally and as a society. Here's the thing, though. In the first chapter of this book, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin doesn't arrive at what I think is the ultimate reason why the Christian faith is good for you and good for our society. She gets there later, so don't worry about it. But in her generosity, she, she doesn't get the chance to say what is best about the Christian faith. And it's not just that we're content and generous and forgiving and self-controlled and, and we persevere, <laughs> assuming that we do all that, which we don't always. It's not even that we're part of a bigger story. It's the nature of the story itself. Other religions tend to emphasise what we do for God, whether that's our personal and private morality or our good works within the community or religious rituals and duties. And that's just as true of some branches of Catholicism and Anglicanism as it is of Hinduism and Judaism and Islam. But authentic biblical Christianity is about what God has done for us, not what we do for Him. You know that, right? It's the story of a God who so loved His people, His wayward little flock of sheep that he left the splendid privileges of his heavenly abode and joined them as a human being one of them Jesus Christ a shepherd of people who said follow me I'm like a gate you enter through which you might be saved I'm a good shepherd I only got your best interests at heart Little sheep, your world is mistaken about what a good life is like. Listen to my voice and follow me. I have come to give you life and life to the full. And you know what we offer in return? Nah. Nah. A few bleats. That's about it. Most remarkably of all, the good shepherd who brings life to the full says, I will lay my life down for you. <laughs> John 10 verse 14, have a look. I know my sheep and they know me. Verse 15, I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. See, the reason why we're not better off without the Christian faith is not just because it drags us into a bigger story, but because of the nature of the story itself. One in which God looks at us bedraggled sheep, weighed down by the concerns of life, not the least of which is our own sins and shortcomings, and says to us, I care for you. 
I care enough to come down for you. I care enough to walk among you. I care enough to walk with you, leading and shepherding you. And ultimately, I care enough to die for you, laying down my life of my own accord. Simply because he cares for us. Just because he loves us. Not because we're promising. Just because he freely does. Now, I reckon Rebecca McLaughlin has done like a wonderful, wonderful job in pulling together this compelling book, Confronting Christianity. And I trust that her findings about religion in general are a real sort of encouraging surprise that just give us a bit of a confidence boost. You know, we're not as small or as silly as we sometimes feel or are told. And I further trust that some of those um, possible counterintuitive reasons we've thought about together give you a joy without pride and motivate us all towards loving service of others. We can take heart without getting ahead of ourselves and definitely without getting proud because it's not like we always live up to those ideals. But as I've thought about things this week, I really hope it's not just that we're part of a bigger story, Dunkirk style, that lightens and brightens your heart. I want it to be the nature of that story that fills your spirit with joy, that you and I so often resembling wayward sheep with so little to bring to an infinite God would be so important to him and so loved by him that he would come down to us and shepherd us and guide us to live among us and then die for us because he cares for us just so. Are we better off without religion? Rebecca McLaughlin makes a powerful argument that we're not. It's a rather dubious assumption she points out. But are we better off without Jesus? Well, in the well-known words of a sheep, nah, nah. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we've, um, we've been buoyed this morning just thinking about some of the positive things you can ascribe to religion in general and uh, the Christian faith in particular. So we thank you for that. We recognize all good things come from you. It's a delight to be caught up in a story bigger than ourselves, but really it's the nature of that story of the Lord Jesus who came down among us shepherded and guided us, then died for us. That is the best of all. So we give you thanks for him and we pray that his example and his work in our lives might give us great joy, might warm our spirits and that might motivate us to keep loving you and one another. In Jesus' name we pray.